Welcome back to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's November 1939. This is episode two. Early winter of that year, the Red Army was an unknown quantity to just about everyone, particularly the Germans, who are going to miscalculate and invade the USSR within two years. The Red Army was an untried theoretical instrument in 1939, after Stalin's purges of the commanding officers in the preceding two years. There had been that stunning one-sided victory when Marshal Zhukov defeated the Japanese at Kalkengol in August 1939, but that was seen as hardly a fair contest. The Japanese had been riding roughshod over the Chinese up until then, and the Chinese army often couldn't even supply its own men with shoes, let alone boots or even guns. They had no air support, no armour. This wasn't a fair fight, at least that was the general perception of this time. The Japanese tanks of 1939 were even more rickety than the Italian tanks, and that was saying something. Zhukov had called down a comparatively vast air force and cut up the Japanese with his mechanised force. The fighting was on the treeless plains of Kalkengal, the open landscape of Mongolia, ideal for the Soviet style of full-frontal guns-blazing tally-ho assaults. Finland was another story. The terrain, as you heard last episode, was like another planet. The Russians were going to find the fighting in the trees and bogs of Finland extremely hard going. Of course, Stalin was going to utterly ignore one of his generals who was aware of this threat posed by the landscape, General Shaposhnikov, the Red Army Chief of Staff. As the Russians built up their logistics prior to the invasion, he was studying their campaign with a rather more jaundiced eye. Shaposhnikov's report to the main military council in Moscow advocated a longer period of build-up, a more comprehensive fire support plan, a more detailed logistic and supply chain blueprint a better order of battle plan and the deployment of the Red Army's best troops into this campaign. The problem for the Russians was these crack troops who were based in the Far East facing a possible Japanese threat because they had invaded Manchuria. They'd already fought a war. He didn't want to move his best troops westwards. Furthermore, Stalin was suffering from the misconception that the Finns wouldn't fight, and if they did, he'd buckle them like tinfoil. Stalin treated Shaposhnikov's report as a bit of a joke, It wasn't all his fault. Both generals Zhidanov and Voroshilov had penned reports stating that the Finnish invasion could be handled by the military resources based in the Leningrad military district. By now, both Germany and Russia had already invaded Poland. The Red Army had swamped their neighbour, seizing 200,000 square kilometres of territory, trapping 13 million people, and that had cost the Russians less than a thousand casualties. Stalin was cock-a-hoop about how easily his soldiers had defeated Poland. Finland was tiny by comparison, a pimple, a cakewalk. General Meritskov, who was General Zhukov's 2IC, was a bit more cautious. After poring over maps of Finland, he wrote a separate report that was not made public, in which he said, The terrain of coming operations is split by lakes, rivers, swamps, and is almost entirely covered by forests. Meritskov also said, It is criminal to think that our task will be easy. Later, Russian military historians suggested that his report was not properly filed. It was part of his private collection, and he merely wrote this to cover his own behind should things go wrong. What is interesting in modern terms is the lack of analysis by the officer class of the Russian army when it came to the Finnish campaign. The lessons seemed not to have been assimilated by the army, which since then has repeated similar mistakes in their invasion of Afghanistan then again when Russia invaded Ukraine. Publicly, In 1939, 
Medetskov told Zhukov that in spite of the terrain, the Finns had no chance of surviving more than a week, maybe two. In fact, Medetskov referred to the coming campaign as a police rather than a military project. Mereskov was more concerned that some overzealous Russian tank commander would blunder over the Swedish border and cause a diplomatic ruckus as they overcame Finnish resistance. Mereskov was the commander of the Leningrad Military District and had operational control over the 7th, 8th, 9th and 14th armies. The front along the Karelia Isthmus was his area of interest. As a 42-year-old Communist Party member, he had risen through the ranks since 1917 and just avoided being purged in 1938. And before the invasion of Finland, he'd been visited by Chief Marshal of the Russian artillery, N.N. Voronov, who was in charge of the gun's logistics. Voronov asked the Chief Commissar of Artillery, Deputy Commissioner Kulik, how many days of shells would be needed. Twelve days, was the reply. Voronov was shocked and said surely they could plan for three months, just in case. His comments were laughed off. The reason was the German Blitzkrieg. The Russians had tailored their assault on the German invasion of Poland and their war in Europe. Armoured spearheads slicing through the enemy's resistance, then spreading havoc in the rear. Massed infantry pouring through these gaps, surrounding pockets of resistance, and tactical air support and lavish supplies of artillery pounding everything. Russia appeared to have a very similar degree of mobility, at least on paper, with vast reserves of artillery and aircraft. But the one significant difference was the landscape, the territory, the geography. The Germans used a relatively good infrastructure in Poland, then Belgium and Holland and France, the main roads, the highways, through the benign topography of continental Europe, and were overcoming all resistance as they took communication centre after communication centre. Finland was different. In front of the first Russian tanks was forest, and then behind this, more forest, and then some more. The Finnish centre of operations was far away from the border with Russia, deep inside its territory. There were only a handful of roads. There was a limited railway. The second difference was the leadership and general training of the German army. The Russians had no equivalent at this point in the war, with the German frontline commander's sense of drive and individual initiative. If Russians deployed that level of lateral thinking, it would be off to a Siberian prison camp for them. The Russian political commissars were chained to the main desk in Moscow, allowing and brooking no freedom to act as soldiers. Thirdly, the Germans had been training their troops for precisely this sort of war, while the Russians had not. The Soviet army was ponderous, led by timid officers and overseen by this commissar echelon, and this was the army that was going to attack a country dominated by individuals who would act alone in a countryside where they could hide literally a few metres away, in the middle of a winter which would kill someone who wasn't dressed or otherwise properly trained. So the Russian plan was supposed to emulate the German Blitzkrieg, but turned into a slow-moving sludge, into a meat grinder that was the Finnish army. Moscow's plan was simple, just overawe the Finns by using vast quantities of manpower, at the same time deploy the air force to bomb the Finnish towns in a kind of one-two punch. The Finns would be terrified, Stalin was convinced of this. Soviet planners were also hoping that the communist sympathizers inside Finland would form a large fifth column and destabilize their enemy within. The Russians were going to invade with very few proper maps, but lots of brass bands and communist party banners and other paperwork. 
Into the thickest forests of the world, they brought in flat trajectory artillery when it called for mortars and howitzers that shot over the trees. Even more shocking, the Russians dragged hundreds of anti-tank weapons into Finland, a country that had no tanks. The Russians were literally copying the German blitzkrieg model down to the most erroneous degree. As you'll hear, the Finns were going to get hold of these anti-tank weapons, having none of their own, and turn them around, aiming them back at the Russian tanks. But the worst part of this planning was Stalin had sent his men into a war in winter, unprepared for a winter war. When his tanks went in, they were still painted grey or black, and the Finns said, thank you very much. Easy to see in a snow-covered landscape. Only after the first assaults in the first weeks did the Russians paint their tanks white. Their infantry didn't have snow capes to hide themselves. They had no ski training. But they did send a few trucks in support of their men, packed with manuals about how to fight in the snow. On the other hand, you could forgive the Russian planners because the bogs and lakes were frozen solid. They had expected their mobile army to drive over these, using them as a form of alternative highway. As you're going to hear, this didn't end well. The key to Finland was the Isthmus. Nothing else mattered. There were virtually no settlements on the Finnish side in 1939, so the Russians expected elbow room in operations, and on paper, north of Lake Ladoga, it appeared even more interesting. The reality was there were only a handful of proper access points, cramping an army seeking to invade using mobile infantry and tanks. Up north, where Lake Ladoga predominates, it looks like a vast open countryside, but the forests here are even more dense the roads limited to one or two wagon tracks, and access to these tracks was only possible for men on skis. The snowdrifts between the trees were deep enough to bury entire squads of men. This meant the Russians would have to stick to the wagon tracks and the roads through the isthmus and around the northeast as they circled north of Lake Ladoga, which meant the Finns could line them up. Instead of deploying specialist units, the Russians were sending battalions without skis, hundreds and then thousands of men were going to die in battles, trapped in these narrow zones, unable to move, snowed under. So, to the order of battle in November 1939. The Russian 7th Army, based at the Karelian Isthmus, was led by General Meritskov, total 14 divisions with three tank brigades, as well as a full mechanized corps of another 1,000 tanks and other vehicles. This army had limited artillery, however, with its divisions still being drawn up as the war started. Their target was the town of Vipuri, followed by a sweep towards the Mannerheim line, and then onwards westward to Helsinki. Russia's 8th Army was sent north of Lake Ladoga, facing the Finnish 4th Corps, who were led by General Hochland. The 8th Army was comprised of half a dozen rifle divisions and two tank brigades. They were ordered to turn the Finns' defence on the isthmus around to the north to face this threat, circling around Lake Ladoga on the north shore was believed they would easily break through the thin Finnish lines there, then hit the Mannerheim line from the north or the rear. The 9th Army was comprised of five rifle divisions supported by a motley collection of armoured units. They were supposed to drive westwards over the Mannerheim line, cutting Finland in two. Some of the most disastrous events for the Russians were going to involve the 9th Army. Backing up the three main armies was the 14th, based near Murmansk. They were not crack units, and had attached armour sections that were going to rush to capture the Finnish port of Petsamo, then on to the Lapland capital of Rovaniemi. This was Finland's most significant centre of communications in its far north. The Finns were going to face attacks from eight directions at once, 
as the Russians pushed westwards after crossing the Isthmus and from the north of Lake Ladoga. The famous Mannerheim Line was going to be hit from the south and the north, while Finland was being cut in two, and in the far north no support could be expected once Petsamo fell. It was a good plan, on paper. Across from the Russians, Mannerheim's Finnish forces were readying themselves, even as the political leadership believed they could negotiate their way out of trouble. The Finnish army of the Karelian Isthmus concluded six divisions, commanded by General Hugo Victor Ostermann. On the right, or the southwest part of this isthmus, was the Second Corps, under General Ochkist, comprised of the 4th, 5th and 11th Divisions, with three groups, or what were called covering troops, operating forward of the Mannerheim Line, specialists. On the left flank of this army, from the Vuoxi waterway to Lake Ladoga, was the 3rd Corps commanded by General Heinrichs, comprised of the 9th and 10th Divisions, with one detachment of covering troops. The 4th Corps comprised two divisions, strung out across a 60-mile line in a kind of concave crescent from the north shore of Lake Ladoga, up towards the Arctic, under General Hochland. The Finnish North Group were arraigned from this 4th Corps all the way to the Arctic Ocean, along a 625-mile front. The North Group was mainly comprised of basic security guards, civic guards, as they were known, as well as border guards and General Tompo's reservists. The total number of troops was going to be somewhere between 300 and 340,000, facing the Russians, who were going to throw more than 450,000 of their men into this invasion. The Finns were up a creek. There was no support forthcoming from the Western European nations. They were too busy at this point dealing with the Germans' Blitzkrieg. They couldn't defend themselves indefinitely against the Russians. Mannerheim was using a political philosophy that the Finns are using today, deploying the conscience of Western civilization against a febrile Russian duplicity. In 1939, Helsinki was hoping to hang on long enough for outside help to arrive, and if this didn't happen to kill so many Russian soldiers that Stalin would be forced to accept a negotiated solution. There was one basic tenet that appeared to have escaped the Russian spies' attention. The Finns had decided that if Stalin was hell-bent on their total subjugation, then every Finn would fight to the last man, woman and child and last bullet. The Finns were going to make the Russians suffer. General Mannerheim was extremely pragmatic when he wrote that Helsinki did not expect victory, but would hand out the most honourable annihilation with the faintest hope that the conscience of mankind will find an alternative solution as a reward for bravery. Even so, most devoted Finnish supporters gave them a week, maybe two. Turning to the combatants, the soldiers themselves, and here we can see the echoes of time. The Finns regarded themselves as better than the Russians because they were fighting for what was right against what was wrong. Ivan, they said, was stupid and lazy and demotivated by oppression and government lies, mentally oppressed by the forests, which the Finns knew like the back of their hands. A joke began to do the rounds before this war, a joke which is still doing the rounds on social media in the 21st century, as the Russians increase their pressure on the Finns. They are so many, and our country is so small. Where will we find room to bury them all? The Finns were going to fight on home ground, like the Ukrainians. They would be buried at home. The Russians were going to be buried in mass graves far away, unknown soldiers in their tens of thousands. There was no such thing as a Finnish army before 1918. All of these had been fighting for the Russians, perfecting both their knowledge and their skills about their upcoming enemy. Many Finnish officers understood Russian, 
Virtually none of the Russians understood Finnish. That was going to be useful tactically. The Finns were also trained by the Germans. They were going to fight like the Germans, then they'd fight like the Russians. A kind of Finnish barroom savagery mixed in, added to the terror that they were going to cause the Red Army. The first thing the Finnish army did was throw out the book. Infantry training was stripped back. Doctrine changed from European or Russian army style to Finnish topography 101. Quasi-guerrilla operations, marksmanship, innovation, thinking on the feet, orienteering in the forest, camouflage, and perfecting quick throat cutting. No parade ground drilling, but physical conditioning through the snow. How to ambush, how to operate long range, the use of deception, fast raids, and terror. The Russians didn't know what was coming for them in this war. The Finns were hopelessly outgunned when it came to artillery, so they concentrated on the right kind, howitzers and mortars. No 88mm straight shooter here. They were going to lob their shells onto the enemy, not into the enemy. The Finns also tried to map every inch of their own territory and turn the forests into killing zone grids. Where the Russians would carpet bomber forest, the Finns were going to insert a surgical shell straight onto a defensive position. This was going to lead to psychological warfare advantages, as you're going to hear. Mannerheim had only enough ammunition for the rifles and light grenades for a two-month war. His light field guns had ammunition for three weeks. His 122mm howitzers had shells for three weeks. Heavy and coastal artillery had just over 14 days of shells, as well as petrol and diesel reserves, which covered roughly two months of operations, and enough aviation fuel for only four weeks. Finnish howitzers were museum pieces dating back to the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 5. The Russians' reserves meant they could fire enough shells with one type of gun on one day that the Finns had in the entire reserve for all their guns. But they did have a few weapons that the Russians learned to fear, including the Russians' own Moisin Nagan rifle, which fired 7.62 rounds. It was sturdy, rugged, a bolt action that was accurate. The Finns' World War I-era Maxim heavy machine guns were going to cut down so many Soviet troops, cumbersome but brutally effective and useful in all weather conditions. The Lati Soloranta 7.16 light machine gun, which could switch from single shot to fully automatic, one of the few of the time they could do this, extremely powerful, with a 500 rounds per minute cyclic fire. The most interesting weapon in the Finnish arsenal apart from their terrifying Puko knife, was the Suomi submachine gun or machine pistol known as a Kunipisulit. The Soviets were so impressed by this weapon that they went on to copy its design for their own Pipish burp gun that was the mainstay of communist buck countries until the AK-47. The Suomi was a meat chopper used by ski patrols for close fighting and spewed out 9mm rounds at almost 900 a minute. It was also rugged, pretty ugly, with a single-shot option for aimed fire at less than 100 yards. At close range, this was a lethal weapon, and the Russians feared and loathed Suomi gunners in particular. It had a 70-round drum magazine. So this was a David vs. Goliath war, with Goliath, the Red Army, so powerful no one gave the Finns a hope when the shooting started. And that happened at 9.20 a.m. on November 30, 1939, when the first Russian plane appeared over Helsinki, dropping thousands of leaflets which urged the citizens of Finland to overthrow their own government. The plane then flew onto Malmi airport and dropped five small bombs, but missed everything. 
Dawn gave way to a dim sun, obscured by thick clouds in the south over Estonia. At 1000 hours 30, nine Russian SB-2 medium bombers flew through these clouds, levelled off and then headed straight for Helsinki Harbour. They released their bombs aiming at the ships in the bay, but none were hit. A symbolic start then to this winter war. So far the Russians had missed everything, including the tone in their propaganda leaflets. The formation of planes banked and returned. This time they aimed at Helsinki Station, but missed the tracks and instead plastered a public square in front of the station, killing 40 civilians. Three of these planes peeled off and strafed the airport, setting a hangar on fire. But they also hit the Helsinki Technical Institute, killing students and faculty. The rest of the planes dropped incendiary bombs on various homes and apartments, for some reason targeting the working-class area of the city. That did nothing for their public pronouncements of fighting for the working class versus the Finnish bourgeoisie. Perhaps the most prescient moment was when the planes dropped their last high-explosive devices on the inner city, some of which hit their own Soviet legation building and caused severe damage. As wars go, this one was off to a cock-eyed start, but the Soviet nightmare was just beginning. For the Finns, this was an existential conflict, threatening their very existence. For the Russian soldier, it was going to be trial by freezing torture and terror. The Finnish soldiers were fighting for honour. The Russian soldier had no idea why they were attacking their tiny neighbour. Next episode, we'll track the first week of the Winter War. Please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com where you'll find a page dedicated to the series and links to the audio. I'll be using desmondlatham.blog for regular updates too. Until next... Goodbye.